0: Well, I'm excited to continue our sermon series this morning. We've been talking about building blocks for the last three weeks. And if you've missed it, this series has all been about helping us grow as disciples of Jesus. That's a good thing for us to talk about is how to grow as disciples of Jesus. In the first week, we talked about having Christ as our cornerstone. Having Jesus as the most important thing about our lives. We built on top of that the next couple weeks by talking about prayer first, engaging with God through the heart of prayer, and then last week diving into what it means to study God's word. And we looked at a helpful way to do that through a help Bible study method. I hope that you guys have been able to use that a little bit this past week, and it's been helpful to you. I'm sorry with the puns this morning. You guys just have to deal with it. Well, this morning we're going to be talking about the subject of self-denial. Uh-oh. I know that's a difficult subject. It's a scary subject to talk about. In fact, I'm not going to lie. I think it's one of the most challenging subjects for us as Christians. This idea of denying ourselves is painful. It's a difficult process to pursue Jesus in his fullness, to take a step away from what is in our hearts and instead laying ourselves down at the foot of the cross and seeking Jesus. Some of what we're talking about this morning is probably going to sound really similar to what we talked about in the first week as Christ as our cornerstone. But I think it's really important for us to take a step back and look at what it really means to deny ourselves. What it really looks like to pursue Jesus with everything that we have. As a result of the fall, as a result of Adam's sin, we have a propensity. And that word propensity just means that we have an inclination towards sin ourselves. We want to live for ourselves instead of living for God. We look to our ways instead of God's ways. And if you felt, if you spent any amount of time with people, you know this to be true. It doesn't take long to spend some time with people to realize that we all want to live for ourselves, that we all have sin in our lives. And if you've read any amount through the Old Testament, you've seen this to be true really well. Like on one page, Israel is doing good, they're following God, God delivers them from the hands of their enemies, and on the next page, they're worshiping a golden calf. Like you can't go two pages throughout the Old Testament without Israel going after the things of their hearts instead of the things after God's hearts. See, time and time again throughout Scripture, we see people who refuse to deny themselves. In a way, they they try to go after God, they do it for a little while, but time and time again, they find themselves living for themselves instead of for God. But although this is true in Scripture, we also witness something different. We don't just witness a God who sees our sin, who sees our, our struggle, who sees us walking away from him and being like, okay, I'm done with them. That's not the type of God that we have. Instead, we have a God who relentlessly pursues us. Even when we fail, even when we turn against him, even when we go our own way, he's the God who pursues us. You know, one of the most haunting phrases throughout Scripture is this. It's when God says, and then I will be their God and they will be my people. He says this dozens of times throughout the Old Testament. And he always says this after Israel has sinned against him. They've sinned against him. They've gone their own ways. And then God, seeing their sin, lays out a plan of restoration. He shows them how they're going to come back to him. And then he says, and then I will be their God and they will be my people. And what this does is it tells us something really important about who our God is. It tells us something really important because he is a God who desires for us to be restored to him. That's really good news for us this morning. The God that we serve desires for us to be restored to him. He doesn't just leave us on our own. He doesn't look at how far we've strayed and says, well, they've had their chance. I gave them 70 chances, but they haven't gotten it yet, so they're cut off at this point. No, we have a God who continuously chases after us, continually offers his grace to us time and time again. He wants us to, to simply see that he is there, that he is the good father that's running after us with arms open wide. Seeing that he welcomes us back into his house. You know, when Israel sins throughout the Old Testament, there's often consequences to their sins. Sometimes they have uh, the, the village plundered, sometimes they get a plague, other times they are exiled to another country. There's always a consequence to sin, but consequences are always designed to help us see God's goodness. We know this to be true in our own lives. When we sin, we recognize there are consequences. We recognize that our lives, when we do something wrong, there's a consequence to doing that. But instead of being in our sin where we can't do nothing about it, God has made a way of restoration. He has made a plan for us to be restored to him. See, sin also has eternal consequences. It doesn't just have these worldly consequences where we wrong someone and then there's a repercussion to it. But sin has an eternal consequence. Because of sin, we are dead before God. We are dead in our trespasses. We are deserving of eternal death, being separated from God forever. But God doesn't leave us there. Instead, he invites us to deny ourselves and to become a disciple of Jesus. He invites us to put away all of our baggage, to put away all of our junk, to no longer carry it behind us, struggling and struggling and struggling, but to let it go and to follow after Jesus. He invites us to come to him with all of our struggles, all of our insecurities, all of our past shame and says, I will restore you. I will restore you. See, the God that we serve is a God of grace. This is really, really good news for us. At least it's really good news for me because I know that I need grace. I know that I need mercy. I know that I struggle and that I fail time and time again. And so it's good news to me that we have a God of grace. We're going to dive into Luke chapter 9 this morning. I'm going to be reading verses 18 through 26. It says this, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Now, there's no doubt that this is a weighty passage of Scripture. There's a big deal to following Jesus. We see that it's not just something that's inconsequential in our lives, but becoming a disciple of Jesus requires us to make a decision. It requires us to leave behind the old things, our former ways of life, and to instead cling to Jesus. See, being a, a disciple of Jesus requires a lifestyle of self-denial. And you may be asking, well, what does it mean to truly deny myself? What does it mean to live a lifestyle of self-denial? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're going to be looking at three different ways this should play out in our lives this morning. Number one, a lifestyle of self-denial begins with Jesus at the center of our life. It begins with Jesus at the center of our lives. And this is what we talked about in the first week of this series, that Christ must be our cornerstone. See, when we become Christians, then our identity of being a Christian must be the most important thing about us. It must be our primary identity. See, what I mean by this is that Christian isn't an adjective, but rather it's a noun. It's not one thing among many things describing us, but rather it is who we are at our innermost being. So that means we're not businessmen, we're not teachers, we're not stay-at-home parents, we're not sanitation workers who also happen to be Christians. We're Christians first who also happen to do these other things. Our primary identity in life is that of a Christian. That means our jobs, our hobbies, the things that we enjoy doing must all find their place through that identity. We must be Christians first in order to live and order our lives appropriately. Jesus must take center stage in everything that we do. Everything that we do, Jesus must have the sinnermost place. All things must be weighed according to where he fits into our lives. We don't get to just think about Jesus in the peripheral. He must be the primary thing in our lives. And living a lifestyle of self-denial, there can oftentimes be this, this idea of a tiered Christianity. That there are some people that are really called to live a lifestyle of self-denial, but that's not for the ordinary, everyday Christians. We're all called to live self-denial lifestyle. We're all called to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily and follow Jesus. Now that's going to look different for each of us. We're each going to have to figure out what that looks like in our lives, but we're all called to this lifestyle. It's not just for the the super Christians who are in full-time vocational ministry like myself or missionaries across the world. It's for all of us to deny ourselves and to come to the foot of the cross. You know, what I really love about this passage that we just read is it begins with the most important question that can be asked of us Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? Not what you've heard about him, not what someone else has told you, but who do you say that he is? Based off the evidence, who is he in your life? Is he a prophet? Is he a good moral teacher? Or is he the son of God who has come to take away your sins? Is he the one who brings about your salvation, who gives you new life? Or is he just doing that for other people? See, how we answer this question shapes how we live our lives. If we say that Jesus is the Son of God, if we say that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lord of all, then living a lifestyle of self-denial isn't a begrudgingly impossible task that we do. Instead, it's this act of worship that we give to the Lord. We no longer see it as something, oh, I've got to deny myself. I don't want to do this, but instead it becomes this glorious thing where we see how good God is. How beautiful this salvation that he offers to us and says, Yes, I'll give whatever you ask, Lord. Anything you want, you can have it. The things that bring me most joy, you can have them. Whatever I am is yours because there is something that you've given me that I couldn't earn at all. Jesus is the Messiah. This task of self-denial is not an easy task. It's a painful process. It hurts to deny ourself. But the weight of who Jesus is makes it more than worth it. See, so when we have a proper understanding of Jesus, it becomes more palatable to follow him. It becomes easier to do that. Because who am I to tell the God of the universe that my way is better? Who am I to tell him that I got this, Jesus? I know that you want me to deny these things. I know you want me to give these things up, but, you know, I I know better than you. I'm the Lord of my life. Jesus must be Lord of everything. Only when he is at the center of our lives will we be able to respond accordingly. Only when he is at the center, only when we've made him Lord, are we able to, to respond appropriately. It's not about getting everything right in our lives first and then coming to Jesus. It's about understanding who he is first and then operating out of that understanding. Number two, a lifestyle of self-denial requires us to flee from sin. Requires us to flee from sin. I'm convinced that the primary gospel message that's been preached in the Western world over the last several decades is not the gospel of the Bible. It's not the same gospel. Instead of being told to repent, instead of being told to change our ways, instead of being told to, to see that our sin is something that grieves God, we're told to simply pray a prayer and ask Jesus into our hearts without any life change. We're told that ah, sin isn't that big of a deal. You can live with it. It's fine. You can keep on sinning because of grace. But a gospel that doesn't cost us anything is not the gospel. The gospel requires us to lay down everything in our lives. It requires us to lay it all down at the foot of the cross. A gospel that doesn't cost us anything is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer referred to as cheap grace. He writes in The Cost of Discipleship that cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. But costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Isn't that a beautiful depiction of what this true grace is? It's a costly thing for us. It's not a cheap thing in our lives where we can live however we want and call ourselves a Christian. It requires us to submit our entire beings to Jesus, recognizing that he alone is Lord. Unfortunately, many of us are are running aimlessly. We're running haphazardly in this life, doing as we please, doing as we wish. We live for whatever makes us happy instead of whatever whatever makes God happy. I think Tozer said it best when he wrote that complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. It's a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. See, sin is a much bigger deal than we make it out to be. It must be put to death in our lives. We must flee from sin and make it our slave. Paul says, I discipline my body and I make it my slave. putting, Putting this to death is a painful process. It's a difficult process. It's one that will cost us everything. See, after Jesus is talking with his disciples and they declare that he's the Messiah, he tells them to take up their cross daily. And when he says this, this is before his crucifixion. But yet Jesus is talking about this in light of his crucifixion. When he's saying this, he knows what's coming to him. He knows that a death is coming to him. And his disciples understood what it meant to follow after this Jesus. They knew what crucifixion meant. They knew what it meant to go upon the cross. To die an excruciating death. There's a cost To following Jesus. Not just for us, but there's a cost to our salvation. It costs Jesus everything. It costs Jesus his life to bring about our salvation. Have you let that sunk into your life? Have you let that sunk in? When you think about salvation, do you think about the price that it costs? Because Jesus willingly surrendered his life. As he willingly goes before the Roman guard, he he lays himself down. And the first thing that they do, they put a crown of thorns on his head. Deep into his skull, they push it down on his head. They take his clothes and they cast lots for him. They make a game out of this. After this, they, they whip him. Not with an ordinary whip, with a cat of nine tails. A whip that has broken pieces of pottery, broken pieces of glass attached to the end of it. And time after time after time they whip Jesus' back. Shredding skin off of it as it goes. His face at the end of it is unrecognizable. His back is shredded, his flesh is hanging off of it. This is what it cost Jesus to bring about our salvation, but they weren't done with him at that point. That wasn't enough because his life hadn't been given at that point. So they have him take his cross, and he can't even bear the weight of it because he's so weak. And finally, when they get to the hill of Golgotha, the executioner spread out Jesus' hands, bind his feet together, And they take a railroad tie looking nail and they drive it through his wrist. They spread out the other arm and they do the same and then they do the same to his feet. And Jesus is is there with the weight of the cross and they stand it up. They place the cross into its base. The thing about crucifixion is if that wasn't bad already, the thing that kills you with crucifixion isn't the excruciating pain. It's the slow suffocation. You have all the weight on you and you can't push yourself up in order to breathe. The diaphragm can't push in the lungs in order to get breath into them. And so what Jesus has to do is he has to push against the nails in his feet in order to to slowly be able to breathe. And it's excruciatingly painful for him, not just because it's difficult, but because his back is shredded open. every breath is difficult for him. every breath is him again, renewing those scars, renewing and tearing open what's already been there. is what Jesus went through for us. And this is a, a graphic depiction. But I think it's worth us knowing what Jesus went through. It's worth knowing that there's a weight to our salvation. It's not something to be taken lightly, but it cost Jesus his life. And he went through all of that, but he saw it as a joyful act of surrender. Because for him, he took the shame of the cross so that we would no longer have the shame of death. He saw that we deserved all of this, but he said, I will willingly take that upon myself. I know that they can't measure up. I know that they can't live the life that I want them to live. And so I'm going to take it upon myself. See, our sin is what put Jesus on the cross. My sin, your sin is what put Jesus on the cross. And he willingly took that for us. Every single one of us has sinned. Every single one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. And the penalty for this is death. The penalty for this is separation from God. Yet Jesus takes our place. He takes our place. He dies the most humiliating death imaginable in that time. The most gruesome death imaginable so that we could have eternal life. So that taking even that death, even the most difficult of death upon himself, that when he is resurrected, can say, I've defeated all death. All death. This is what Jesus has done. And what this should do for us is it should tell us just how seriously that God takes our sin. He takes it so seriously that he's willing to give his life on the cross. That he's willing to endure all of that suffering so that you and I might be restored to God. This is grace that we don't deserve. It's beyond anything that we can imagine. And so our sin, it should grieve us. Our sin shouldn't be something that we are content to live with. Because if it is, then we've misunderstood what Jesus has done. We've misunderstood the cost of our salvation. See, we can't hold on to our sin and also follow after Jesus. Now, please don't miss here. I'm not saying that if you sin one time that you're in danger of losing your salvation. We're going to continue to struggle with sin. But the the idea is if we're living an unrepentant lifestyle, If we're sinning and we don't care about it, we're just going about our ways and we're doing whatever pleases us, that's where the danger is. See, when we sin, we should immediately repent. We should be like, oh God, I know this grieves your heart, but I know you've purchased my salvation. I know that you've made a way for my sin to be forgiven. And so now I'm going to turn and follow you. See, repentance isn't just feeling sorry for your sin. It's not just asking for forgiveness, but but repentance is changing your mind. It's going in a different direction. It's saying that I've done this thing. God, I asked for your forgiveness for us. Now I'm going to go in a different direction. Now I'm going to go in your way. We're all going to sin. So this is the framework we need to use when that happens in our lives. Now, if you're habitually struggling with sin, it's time to make a change. We can't be content to say, well, I'm always going to struggle with this. This is just my my lot in life. This is my thorn in the flesh, as Paul would say. No, habitual sin is not normal for the Christian. If we're constantly sinning and sinning and sinning, it's time to make a change. Sometimes that's a drastic change in our lives. Sometimes that means throwing away our computer. Sometimes that means quitting our job. Sometimes that means moving away from the place that you're in. See, sin is a serious matter and it's something that we should flee from. Sometimes self-denial looks like talking about our junk with others telling others the things that we're, we're struggling with so that they can encourage us, so that they can help us, so that they can walk alongside us. It's not comfortable to share your sin. It's an act of self-denial. But the cross wasn't comfortable for Jesus. Why should we seek comfort in this life if Jesus didn't seek comfort in this life? See, Jesus paid much too high a price for us to live in bondage. He didn't intend for us to live this way. Number three, a lifestyle of self-denial means surrendering to God's way in all things. Each of us here, we have different personalities. We have different goals, we have different desires, different dreams, and even different fears. Each of us are, are wired differently. But each of us in our lives must put all of that under the lordship of Jesus. He must be lord of everything in our lives. And I think this is where the process of self-denial gets a lot murkier for us. It's easy to realize that I need to flee from sin. It's easy to realize that I need to to root that out in my life. But, But denying seemingly good things, that's a lot more difficult. Denying the things that I enjoy, the things that I want to do that aren't necessarily sin, that's a lot more difficult for me to do. And I can't answer the question of what you need to deny in your life. You'll have to do that. But I can give you a helpful formula. It's this. If something is producing the fruit of the Spirit in your life, it's likely something that can stay. But if something in your life is producing the fruit of the flesh— then it's something that needs to go. It's something that needs to be taken out and be avoided. In the 5th century, uh, Christianity had become legal in the Roman world. It had become welcome in the Roman world. As Christians are trying to figure out how to live their lives in light of this, they're no longer being grossly persecuted. They're no longer, uh, it's no longer illegal to follow after Jesus. They're trying to figure out how to, to live life in light of a world that's okay with them. Not necessarily welcoming of them, but okay with them. And the Bishop Augustine shared that that we can embrace the things of society so long as they don't misshape our souls. So long as they don't distract us from our goal of loving God and loving our neighbors. There are a lot of things in this world that aren't sinful in themselves, but they can cause us to forsake the way of Jesus. They're not bad things, but they can create bad things within us. And what that is for me may not be the same for you. You may be able to engage in things that I can't engage in. You may be able to, to fight for things that I can't fight for. See, some of the things that I, I can think of here are, are money, politics, career. Hobbies, media, and even relationships are some of these things in our lives that aren't sinful in themselves, but can cause this within us. They can misshape our soul, as Augustine says. And the the most dangerous thing about all of this is often we don't recognize this happening. Often we just follow these things because it seems right to us. It seems like a noble pursuit for us. But yet these things can misshape our souls. Our greatest calling in this life is to love God with everything we have. To love him with our hearts, soul, mind, and strength. And to love our neighbors as ourselves. All of our neighbors. Even the ones we don't particularly And the way we do this is by surrendering our whole lives to Jesus. Everything to Jesus and giving the Spirit the room to lead us in all these things. It's not just about surrendering because once we surrender, we'll fill it with whatever we want. It's about surrendering and yielding to the Spirit. Thank God I'm laying this down at your feet. Now show me your ways. Lead me in your ways. Now, I'm not going to break down every possible thing and how it can misshape our souls, but there are three that I want to talk about this morning. I think these three are are pretty common for us. They're ones that I think all of us in this room can say that we've struggled with at some point in our lives. The first one that I want to talk about is your career. Your career can be used for the glory of God. It can be used as a mission field to share the gospel with your unbelieving co-workers. It can be used to support your family. It can be used to support the mission of God in the local church and in missionaries throughout the world. But it can also distract you. It can distract you from your greater responsibilities of loving your family, of loving God and making disciples. It can lead you to to look for comfort in all the wrong places because you're so stressed out, because you're so tired from working all the time, so tired from striving after the things of the world. The careerism can misshape our souls by seeing money, things, and success as the ultimate goal in this life. Now, that's not going to be the case for all of us. Some of us, we're we're fine with our careers. It's an exercise for the glory of God. But some of us will struggle with that. Some of us will seek more, more, more. And if that's the case for you, perhaps it's time to consider a change. Perhaps it's time to do something different. The second area that I want to talk about is politics. Politics is something that can be used for God's glory. As we seek to provide for the general welfare, as we promote justice and ensure that our laws aren't contrary to the natural laws of God. It can be used for God's glory, but it can also be used to make us hate our neighbors. It can also make us display a lack of love and ultimately place our hope in a political party or a nation instead of God political activism can misshape our souls by convincing us that our political agenda is worth fulfilling by any means necessary, even if it's contrary to the fruit of the Spirit. Even if it makes us display the fruit of the flesh, we should pursue those things because they're noble in our heads. This is a lie of the enemy. Politics can be used for the glory of God, but it can also be used to misshape your souls. If this is something that you struggle with, if you can't engage in politics without hatefully talking about those you disagree with, or recognizing that no matter what happens in this world, that God is still on the throne, then maybe you need to give it up. Maybe you need to to walk away from it. Maybe you don't need to share that. Maybe you don't need to fight for that cause. Because God is still in control. There's still a hope that's greater than any political hope. Than any hope that exists because of the the nation of America. The third thing is media. Media is something that can be used for the glory of God because it awakens our souls to God's own creativity. It shows us that, that God is someone who wants us to enjoy this life. It makes us wonder at being made in his image because he's given us this sense of creativity, this means to create. But media consumption can also be used as an escape. An escape from our calling, as an avenue to expose us to gross sin. As a means to disarm us from living for God. Media consumption can misshape our souls by distracting us from God's good creation. And from his views of what's right and what's wrong. So in your life, if you're you're numb to violence, if you're numb to nudity, if you're numb to secular humanism, then it may be time to give up media consumption. It may be time to lay down something that can be used for good for the better. For the most excellent way, the way of God. See, when each of us stands before God, he isn't going to ask us how much money we made. He isn't going to ask us how many political arguments we won. He's not going to ask us how popular we were. He's not going to ask us if we looked at all the greatest things and the newest things and all the things that we can be distracted. He's going to ask us what we did with his gospel. He's going to ask us what we did with Jesus. Who am I to you? Who is Jesus to you is what he will ask us. Did we make much of Jesus? Did we make much of the gospel? Or were we constantly distracted by other things? Were we constantly enticed by sin and temptation? Were we constantly given ourselves to things that seemed noble? Or did we deny ourselves and take up the way of Jesus? We must be willing to forsake everything in our lives for the sake of the gospel. Does that mean you need to leave your job or sell all your possessions or stop consuming all media? Maybe. That may mean yes to you. Sometimes it does mean giving up a great paying job. Sometimes it does mean choosing to live more simply. Or choosing not to engage in politics or not to own a television or not to have a computer in your house because it's too great of a temptation for you. Sometimes it is doing those things, but daily it looks like us putting Jesus at the center of our lives. Making decisions based off of who he is and who he's called us to be. If we'll live this way, then these other things will fall into the background if we'll see Jesus as the most important thing, if we'll run from sin, if we'll pursue his way in all things, then things in our life will start to line up. Our lives will be changed. Without Christ, we're all destined for spiritual death. Without him, we're destined to spend eternity separated from God. But in Christ, we have everlasting joy. We have everlasting joy. We have joy unspeakable because he lived the sinless life that we couldn't live. He did what we couldn't do and then he offered himself in our place. He took the scorn and the shame of the cross so that you and I might have eternal life after death. He was resurrected so that we can also be resurrected here in this life and in the life to come. In Christ alone, our hope is found. In Christ alone, our hope is found. And so what that should do to us is it should mean that we posture our lives as that is true. If in Christ alone, our hope is found, then we should live that way. We should cut out everything that stands in the way. Everything that gives us false hope. Everything that distracts us. Everything that takes us in a different direction. And so this morning, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to examine your life. No, better, I challenge you to let the Holy Spirit examine your life. To ask him to show you the ways that you've erred. Show you the places that you've placed your hope when it should have been in Jesus. To show you where you need to deny yourself. For some of us, that may look like surrendering to Jesus for the first time. Some of us, it may mean repenting from habitual sin in our lives. For others, it may mean laying down something that that we think is good, but we know is distracting us from the things of God. No matter what it looks like, no matter what it looks like for you, I want to challenge you to be uncomfortable this morning, to take a step in faith. And so this morning, we're going to open up the altar we're going to go old school for a little bit, but this isn't. there's nothing special about this altar. There's nothing special about taking a step right here, but rather it's about something inside of our souls, realizing that we need to step out. We need to, to get out of ourselves and take a step towards God. And so in just a moment, I'm going to pray. And as I pray, if you feel the Lord tugging on your heart to respond this morning, I encourage you to come up front. To do business with God at the altar. To let the altar alter your life. Father, we are so thankful. We are so thankful for your salvation. So thankful for what Jesus has done for us. God, you saw our sin, you saw our shame, you saw our difficulty. You didn't turn away from us. You didn't run. You didn't smite us. But instead, you sent your Son so that we might have eternal life. You willingly took upon the cross, bearing its scorn, its shame, so that we might have life, that we might have it abundantly. And I ask this morning for you to, To move in our hearts, move in our minds. Holy Spirit, examine our ways. Show us where we have erred from you. Show us the ways in which we've placed our hope in other things. Show us where we need to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow after Jesus. God, you are good, you are mighty. Move in our hearts and minds this morning. In Christ's name.